0: The following sermon audio is from the Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about the Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life.
1: Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 3 verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold a voice from heaven said, "This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We thank God for his holy word
0: let 's pray one more time, uh, Lord. we want to um, I want to bring before you um, Ryan Brown this morning uh, lord I you know he's been um, He's been going back and forth to Louisville. He's been caring for his uh, father's in decline. And um, and it's hard, hard on several levels. I pray that you'd sustain him this morning and um, that you'd give him courage, that you'd give him peace, that you'd give him the right words um, for everyone involved, that Ryan would be a light in that situation. Let we pray that you'd provide for Katie and Cannon uh, as they're. Uh, without him present for more time in recent weeks. And, Lord, we also want to pray for Andy Serfolio, who's been ill for some time now um, with multiple viruses and um, different sicknesses. God, we ask that you give her some relief. We ask that you give her rest. We ask that you would meet her in this dark space and uh, that she would actually... Have some sweet meditations on your word and on your character that she would Feel your comfort around her and that she would be Strangely renewed in her spirit, even though her body is weak And lord as we consider jesus mission this morning And how we're called to respond to it we ask that you would send your spirit to us to open our eyes to these words and to make them applied in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's a powerful thing when leaders can identify with the people that they represent. It turns out the CEO of Walmart actually started his career loading trucks for Walmart as a teenager. And the CEO for GM started his career on the assembly line. And the CEO of uh, Planet Fitness started behind the front desk at a local gym. This isn't only true in business, though. If you think about uh, royal figures, the the better ones at least, figures like Princess Diana and now Princess Kate, like they've gone to, to hospitals and minefields and mental asylums and prisons. Why? In order to understand and advocate concerning the troubles of the common man or woman. Uh, President Franklin Roosevelt, another example. He was well known for his fireside chat radio programs where he was able to connect with the American people. And he was known for his policies attempting to relieve the troubles of the Great Depression for the average American. And after FDR died in Warm Springs, Georgia, as his coffin was being loaded aboard the train, a reporter found a local man by the train depot weeping bitterly. And so the reporter asked the man, Oh, Did you know the president? No, he replied. But he knew me. It's inspiring when relatable political or business leaders give people courage and dignity, but it's usually they can do it in part for a decade or so. Infinitely more wonderful is the way Jesus Christ identifies with his people to save them and transform them forever. That was his mission from the start to be Emmanuel, God with us, and to be the Lamb of God for us. And so in today's passage, we have a glimpse of when that sympathetic high priest role first came into clarity for the world to perceive. As if Jesus were announcing, and the Father and the Spirit were cheering him on as he said, mission accepted. Last week we were introduced to the ministry of John the Baptist, and he was the first prophet in Israel for a, after a 400-year gap. So people came to him to confess their sins and to be baptized in the river, and they marked themselves as a life prepared for the coming of the Lord. John knew that his work was just preparation for the Messiah. It would be the Messiah who would baptize with spirit fire and who would bring in God's harvest. We know that John the Baptist and Jesus were distant relations. Their mothers might have been cousins, or Elizabeth might have been Mary's aunt, or something like that. Uh, From the visit that's recorded in Luke chapter 1, it's clear that John would have known about Jesus' unique identity before now. So, it's natural that when Jesus comes from Galilee to be baptized by John, John tries to prevent him. Because this is a shocking request. It's a shocking request. John says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? This was a baptism of repentance, and Jesus didn't need to repent. Remember, they were confessing their sins as part of the baptism process, so Jesus would have confessed nothing. But by being there, Jesus was choosing to start his public ministry by affirming John's ministry. And it made sense because who would benefit from all that Jesus came to do on this earth? It was those who had humbled themselves, those who had felt their need of the mercy of God, the poor in spirit, as Jesus would call them in chapter 5. So he appears at this baptism, and he's symbolically gathering the repentant to himself, even though John would keep baptizing for a time afterward. And this sort of solidarity with sinners, it isn't new on the pages of the Bible. The prophet Daniel, if you remember, he was a righteous man. But he prayed a prayer of confession for all the exiles, and he said, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. So Daniel was claiming a share in the sins of others, even of those who were born long before his time. And then Nehemiah, likewise, led the people in repentance like that, voluntarily joining himself to their guilt. So there's precedent, but still, it's one thing to show up on the scene and cheer on the baptism. It's another thing, you know, or or to, uh, to pray like Nehemiah or Daniel did, where you're sort of... Not distinguishing your actions from the sins of others, but Jesus is doing something different. He is physically getting into the waters of repentance. That's an action that easily could have been misunderstood by others. I mean, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would never take that risk to associate themselves so closely with the crowds. Or if they did come to the baptism, it would be to prove themselves the more fervent repenters or, or to boastfully display that, well, they only had very minor sins to confess. John turned them away from the start because he knew that they could only use his baptism in a corrupt way. But Jesus, on the other hand, John tries to turn away because he was too righteous. And this dynamic is going to keep appearing throughout the Gospel of Matthew, where the religious establishment continually Recoils from any contact with the impure. Meanwhile, Jesus is interacting with corrupt tax collectors, prostitutes, pagans, the Roman oppressors. He's even touching lepers and the diseased and dead bodies. And the result is always them being drawn into his purity and life, not the other way around. So Jesus standing with sinners in the Jordan River reminds us of Isaiah 43. We did not plan this with the the song this morning. Um, God says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. So whatever sin, whatever sorrow, whatever suffering in his people, Jesus doesn't back away. He draws near. And I wonder... As Jesus' people, do we draw near to the unclean? Sometimes I think that we envision ourselves, when we think about ourselves as carrying our cross, like Jesus told us to, pick up your cross and follow me, maybe we're not necessarily thinking about these sorts of burdens that Jesus bore, the burdens of others. Now, we think about dealing with our own struggles or our own personal advancement in discipleship and spiritual growth. Well, that's something that the Pharisees thought a lot about too. But it's much harder to wade down into the waters with the sin sick and those who are messed up by this world. I met a pastor who told me about years of struggle he had with this mentally disturbed man who would attend their church. And this man had some hygiene problems, and occasionally he also had to be pulled aside and told that certain behavior was inappropriate. But he kept coming, and the pastor kept having the hard conversations with him while also secretly resenting his presence that, from the pastor's perspective, was just making things harder for their church plant. Well, one night, the pastor had a dream. And in the dream, this mentally unstable man came up to him and was not unwell at all. He was visibly changed in the face, particularly in the eyes, and he was well-groomed. And with a clear and calm voice, he came and shook the pastor's hand, and he said, Thank you for always treating me with dignity. As you can imagine, the pastor woke up with a fresh resolve to be as Jesus to this man and to other hurting and confused people in their midst. Now, that's an extreme example but I hope, I share it because I hope it, it'll help us when we face less extreme examples. You know, the situations that it invite us to get down in the water and identify with people. How do you react when a brother or sister has an addiction or marital problems or is so plagued by anxiety that he can't go two weeks without some sort of a breakdown? How do you respond when someone blew up in you at you in frustration or when someone seems negligent with their kids or clearly isn't making church a priority, do you just size them up and label them and assess the situation from afar like the religious leaders that John told off? Do you keep them at a distance and say, I, I, I sure hope they get their act together? Or do you follow Jesus in saying, yes, these are my people. God, we are one body together. Look on us in mercy because we are a sinful people. Sinless Jesus, willingly identifying with sinners, should never stop shocking us and humbling us and motivating us to do likewise. John was shocked because, as he said in verse 11, he wasn't even worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. And three years later, Peter would be shocked as Jesus came to wash his feet, a disgusting servant's job. Peter's impulse was right to argue You shall never wash me. Jesus, you can't be involved with this mess. And yet Jesus' response is that he must. And that's similar to what he says to John here too in verse 15. A statement that I'll refer to as a loaded explanation. This is a loaded explanation. This is thick. There's a lot here. Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What? Let it be so now. So Jesus agrees with John. Yeah, technically I don't need to be baptized by you. This will be something abnormal. Abnormal like if Michael Jordan shows up at a local basketball clinic as a participant. Unusual, like the president of the United States sitting next to you on a commercial flight. At a fundamental level, it's just totally unnecessary. So then that leaves you asking for the reason behind the basic facts of things. And let it be so now gives us a clue. It hints that something will soon be happening that will make sense of this after the fact. Like if Jordan endorsed this specific basketball clinic that he sampled and is going to fund its spread across the nation or... Or if the president, uh, maybe there was a security threat against Air Force One, and so by boarding this flight, he was actually masterfully hidden in plain sight. These are probably poor examples. But when we look back, when we look back from the cross, Jesus' identification with sinners at the cross, we understand that, and we look back on this baptism, everything falls into place. We understand what he was about. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us. John and Jesus both have a role to play here. John, as God's prophet, is acting out a prophetic sign. Just as Abraham did 2,000 years earlier when he bound Isaac on the wood of the altar. So the son, Jesus, is also going to go under the sacrificial knife or under the waters of judgment, whichever... Imagery you want to use all of it is pointing to his ultimate identification with sinners and his mission of atonement on the cross So thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness Fulfilling all righteousness doesn't mean So that we can do good stuff like not lying or serving the poor or in this case Getting baptized as if it's just a good deed that needed to be Completed check got baptized No, what Jesus is saying is that God has a specific plan that needs to be lived out by these two in this moment. It's a plan to bring about rightness on the earth. And John and Jesus have an important part to play at this specific moment. And to start seeing how, let's remember that from the very beginning of Matthew, Jesus is being portrayed as the fulfillment of the whole story of God's people. He was introduced as the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of exiles. With the visits of the Magi and their gifts, He was being shown; it was being shown that one greater than Solomon is here. But Jesus is also pictured as the greater Moses, and that imagery is going to continue throughout the whole book of Matthew. So like the infant Moses, Jesus was due to be executed by the forces of an evil king, Like the young man Moses, the child Jesus fled out of the land, away from the evil ruler's grasp. Like Moses and all of Israel, God says of Jesus, Out of Egypt I called my son. In chapter 4, Moses' 40 years in the wilderness will be relived with 40 days of fierce temptation. In chapters 5 through 7, Jesus will, like Moses, be delivering words from the mountain. Though, while Moses received the law from God, Jesus himself will be giving it. Okay, but here in chapter 3, where do we see the shadow of Moses? That's right, it's in the midst of the waters. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, he speaks about the wilderness generation by calling them all those who were baptized into Moses. So he's talking about the crossing of the Red Sea behind their leader, Moses. He calls it a baptism an initiation by going through water. And we know that they were brought safely through to the other side. Throughout the Bible, the waters are symbolic of chaos and destruction. We see that in Genesis, Exodus, Job, Psalms, Jonah, Revelation. And so what baptism does in the Hebrew mind is it brings us to a place covered by waters. It's terrifying. But in God's hands for our redemption, and then safely through to the other side. So Jesus came to John's baptism in part to take his place as a greater Moses who would lead the people not through physical waters, but through a deliverance far greater than the Red Sea. In chapter 12, he'll actually explain his death and resurrection by speaking of the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah, after three days, came up from the waters, so also would Jesus come up from the waters, but like, like Moses leading the people of God behind him. So in this loaded explanation, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus is saying that he had to take his place in the story of deliverance. And that's not on the bank of the river looking down on the people, but it's with them in the waters as their brother, their leader, their shepherd, their deliverer. Now I want to be clear that John's baptism was not Christian baptism. It was the precursor to Christian baptism. There's important differences. There's also parallels. Um, But I do want you to see that just like Jesus had his place to fill in the Father's plan, to fulfill all righteousness, he had a place in the, the plan and in the community, so also do you as one of his people. And after we come to Christ the way that we act out our new identity starts with baptism. What we act out, what we declare with our actions as important includes baptism. It's, it's given as an ordinance by which we take our place in the story. We declare to the world that by grace, through faith, we have been united with Christ. We've been buried with him through baptism into death. We have been raised with him from the water to newness of life. So we display that to the world in baptism. It's been said that the New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized Christian. And yet that's increasingly become a category in um, the last 50 years, unbaptized Christians. It's because we live in such an individualistic culture, right? People can kind of treat the church like a buffet to get what they want when they want it. But I want to tell you that if you've come to trust in Christ, you need to submit to baptism to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, to conform to the Father's good designs for redemption. At John's baptism, Jesus willingly identified with sinners, and that's a trajectory that would continue all the way through the cross and beyond. So now, Christian baptism is a way in which Jesus commands us to identify with him. So if you haven't taken that seriously Do it. Do it for Christ. Do it for your own joy. You can talk to any of the pastors about how to get that process started. And I don't want to make too much of a point of it, but but this type of thinking, what role do I have among the people of God? What is needful for me to do at this time to be in my place for God's plan of redemption? Those sorts of questions are very helpful for us, but... They don't really come naturally to us as 21st century Americans, right? We like to think of ourselves as perpetual free agents. We like to, to think that it's up to us. It pains us to think about submitting to anything, even the church. But thinking like this, how do I take my place in God's plan? That is what will get us to church or to life group on those days when we're just not feeling it. Thinking like this is what will get us to press into rather than abandoning a difficult task or a hard relationship that we know God has brought into our lives. Because we understand that what's happening here is about much more than just our preferences or choices. It's about God's good plan for a new humanity that we've been woven into. And so even when we don't understand the good that can come from it, or we don't totally get why it's fitting for us at this time, we still take our place where all the repentant, messed up ones are, excited to see how Jesus is going to fulfill all righteousness among us. And in verse 16... As Jesus does take his place in the story, he, as he does do what is fitting to fulfill all righteousness, we see and we come to understand much more about his mission accepted. Because God the Father responds with a stunning affirmation. A stunning affirmation. Verses 16 and 17 are just, they're really just a brief part of this chapter. But in these two verses, we see at least seven hints of what Jesus' mission is all about, what he's accepting, and all of those seven reasons hang on this path of identifying with sinners that Jesus has just officially begun. I don't know if there's anywhere in scripture where there's so much imagery just crammed into such a small amount of space, so we don't have time to go through all of the implications, but I'm just going to give you a whirlwind tour here of all that we can see in these two verses, and All this would totally be obvious to a first century Jewish reader who knew their Old Testament. So, hints about what mission Jesus is accepting. Here we go. Number one, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. The heavens were opened to him. Some sort of glimpse of God's dwelling was given. Luke isn't as clear, but in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and John, it kind of sounds like this opening of the heavens and the descent of the dove were only visible to Jesus and John. Uh, Maybe it's like a private reassurance or a I'm proud of you moment from the father to the son. And John was also allowed to, to testify to it. Well, John had just been proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And here we see that, Access between heaven and earth is restored through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder on the cross and through the resurrection. That reunification of heaven and earth is one. And even now it's playing out in a hidden way among the people of the kingdom. But when Christ returns, created matter is going to catch up with the hidden reality and the new heavens and new earth will be revealed and it's a combined realm that was glimpsed in the garden of eden but the fullness and the permanence of it will be known only at the opposite bookend of history so god will dwell with his people and all will be done on earth as in heaven that's what we pray for And that will happen because Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness. That's being shown in verse 16. Number two, Jesus comes out of the water, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. This signals that a new creation is on its way. In Genesis 1, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Hovering, the only other time this Hebrew verb is used in the whole Bible is it's used of an eagle fluttering over its nest. So at the very beginning, the creative Holy Spirit is pictured like a bird hovering over the waters. One translation says, God's Spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. And here we have a dove descending over the baptismal waters of repentance. Jesus' identification with sinners will lead to a new creation. And 2 Corinthians says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Even now, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Number three. He saw the Spirit descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This points us back to Genesis 8, another creation renewal account, when the dove came back to Noah with an olive branch in her mouth, showing that the waters had subsided from the face of the earth. And this tells us that Jesus is the greater Noah, whose obedience to the Father preserves the remnant people of God through the floods of destruction. Number four. Throughout the Old Testament, there are a number of times when a prophet of God takes oil and pours it over the head of someone and declares that person to be king. And Matthew has been very clear in chapters 1 and 2 that Jesus is the true king of Israel. And so we would expect in this run-in with the first prophet in 400 years that it's going to involve an anointing as king. But instead, John does nothing physical to exalt Jesus above others. Instead, John, under protest, is actually bringing Jesus low into the waters on par with the other people of God. So it's not a sign of his exaltation, but of his eventual suffering and humiliation. So then, is Jesus just going to leave this encounter with the prophet without a proper anointing as king? Nope. God himself will anoint God the Son. Not with oil, but with that which the oil in the Old Testament always pointed to, the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit isn't only resting on Jesus to indicate a new creation, but also is marking him and empowering him for his work as the rising king. Now, what is the work of God's Spirit-anointed king? Jesus himself tells us in Luke 4 by quoting from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is that anointed one, and we will see in his ministry all of those beautiful ways in which he ushers in the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 17, we have a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And unlike the sights of the heavens opening and the dove descending, it seems that this was actually audible to all. So number five, we learn the thing we learn about Jesus' mission. There's a reference here to Psalm 2-7. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So again, it draws in that son of David, son of Abraham language. Jesus will be the cosmic king whose reign brings blessing to all nations. Number six, when Jesus is called my beloved son, it points us back to Genesis 22 when God told Abraham, take your son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there. God tested Abraham, but stopped him from doing any harm to Isaac and provided a ram caught in the thicket as a substitute. But the whole event was a prophecy for how Jesus, the truly promised offspring, would one day actually be put to death on the same mountain. So by referencing the beloved son here, God is revealing the unexpected climax of this king's mission. He was going to absorb the guilt of others and die a sacrificial death to make atonement for sin. And finally, number seven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This points the way back to Isaiah 42. God said through Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Jesus is that servant bringing justice to the nations who will not break the weak ones or snuff out the discouraged ones in the process. And whether they know it or not, the farthest reaches of the world long for his reign. I know this is a lot to take in. Maybe you're like, I didn't really get any of that. Just a whole lot of Old Testament stuff fulfilled in Jesus. And if that's all you take away from this passage, Old Testament stuff fulfilled in Jesus, great. Well, What we're seeing here, though, is is, it's the perfection of the Word of God, right? Across 66 books, 40 authors, thousands of years, three languages, we see astounding connection, never any wasted imagery, and it all comes together in the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe we should think about Jesus' baptism in this way. The cross and the resurrection and the ascension are, that's when he takes the scepter and the crown's on his head and he sits on the throne of power. But this baptism is kind of like the start of that ceremony. So imagine the British coronation ceremony. Like there's a lot of symbolic pageantry and then and the Archbishop of Canterbury, he administers these sacred oaths and, and lists the duties of the monarch that he or she would, would vow to fulfill. So here, instead of making vows, Jesus shows vows. He goes down into the water. He displays his identification with the sinners he came to save. He's saying, they're with me. I'm with them. Come what may. And he knows what will come. Quite simply, Jesus is saying, I want the path of the suffering servant. I will be the sacrifice that Isaac was pointing to. Father, I will lead your people through the waters and bring them safely to the other side. I will do what you have designed in order to bring about a new creation and a righteous, unending reign. And to that, the Holy Spirit says, Jesus, I will be with you throughout your mission. And to that, the Father says, Jesus... I love you and I'm pleased with you. And through all these words, the Father and the Spirit say to us recognize who this is and listen to him. And that's really what we should take away from Jesus' baptism. Here is the one we must believe and we must obey. First, we must see him as he is. We must believe that this truly is the one to whom everything leads. He is the king overall. He is the king we desperately need. So we should see in his identification with us, he's unlike any ruler the earth has ever known. And that's why we trust him. We trust him because he knows us. He takes on our burdens. He ushers in justice with a gentleness that protects the weak and brokenhearted. He personally leads his repentant ones through the waters of destruction to freedom and life in the lasting kingdom. And so, because Jesus said, mission accepted. In him, you are a new creation, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so, you also can obey by joyfully saying mission accepted to any difficult path of identifying with sin and suffering of others that may be marked out for you. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be a people like this, a people of Jesus He went before us. He identified with sin and suffering. He brought about the ultimate solution. Compared to that, all we have to do is be in him and rest in him and trust him, and then we can function in the same way. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to identify with sinners and sufferers, to say, these are my people, to intercede for them, Lord, bind us together in unity. Bring more into our number and magnify your son as he saves a repentant people through the waters. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.